Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Oxford Baptist Church with our pastor, Andy Brown. We pray you'll be blessed as you apply these truths to your life. Well, it's a brand new year. And of course, you know what a brand new year means, right? All of us have the opportunity to do what's only inevitable in a new year, and that is we get to get older. Isn't that fun? But I've noticed something, and as I inevitably age, the more nostalgic I tend to become. Now, that's sort of a strange word, isn't it? I'm in that period of time in my life where uh, I have to choose my words carefully because I have a six-year-old who's very inquisitive. She likes to ask a lot of questions, very circuitous. I used that word yesterday with her, and she said, huh. Very circuitous in some of her questioning because she likes to, you know, ask the why question. Well, you can ask the question why as much as you like, but you're just going around in a circle, circuitous. So anyway, so nostalgia is one of those words that's sort of strange, but we all know what nostalgia is, right? Well, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, nostalgia is a sentimental longing or wishful affection for a period in the past. That's what it means to be nostalgic. But I don't think I'm the only one who's nostalgic. I think that there's a spirit of nostalgia that has gripped this country. Just, for example, look at the uh, world of entertainment. If you pay attention to the movies that are coming out, I mean, is there no new idea that anyone has? They're remaking some of the old movies, some of the some of the TV series that are being produced or some that were produced 30, 40 years ago, books that are being written. And But the strangest thing to me is I was in the store the other day and I saw a section for vinyl records. I'm thinking, what in the world is going on? I remember the days when you used to have to go to a certain store and you could go buy CDs or cassettes, whatever the case may be. And I know some of you are already thinking, well, aren't you little and young and all these things. But I remember when the, when the iTunes came out and iPod came out, and then all of a sudden you couldn't go out and buy CDs anymore. You couldn't go out and buy cassettes anymore. And now all of a sudden I walk in the stores and some stores are selling vinyl records. What on earth is going on? Well, I was walking around in one of those stores the other day, and I was surprised to see someone from the music past trying to make a comeback. And, of course, I was looking around, and I saw this anthology of Garth Brooks. Some of you Garth Brooks fans, maybe, maybe not. Either way, everyone knows who that guy is, probably one of the most famous country singers that was ever been. So I saw this anthology sitting on the shelf in Target the other day. I remembered a song that he used to sing, and I've heard it sung in recent times, and I had this sense of nostalgia come upon me. It was the song that he covered that was uh, written by the Nobel Peace Prize laureate Bob Dylan, and is also covered as recently as by Adele. It was that song, To Make You Feel My Love. Some of you may know it. Let me read a few lines of that song for you because I think it's a beautiful. Listen to what it says. When the rain is blowing in your face, the whole world is on your case. I could offer you a warm embrace to make you feel my love. I'd go hungry, I'd go black and blue, I'd go crawling down the avenue. There's nothing that I wouldn't do to make you feel my love. I could make you happy, make your dreams come true. There's nothing that I wouldn't do. Go to the ends of the earth for you to make you feel my love. Now, that song's beautiful. 
And the beauty of that song is the story that it tells. It's the story of a lover who is willing to go to the ends of the earth just to demonstrate their love. Today, what I want to do as a gospel preacher, I want to tell you and talk to you about someone, listen, who has moved heaven and earth to make you feel his love. I want to talk to you today about someone who has moved all of history to bring us to himself. Someone who has demonstrated his love for us by loving us with an everlasting love and dying and then coming back from the grave all so that we could know the extent, the height, the length, the depth of his love for us. Listen, this is the most amazing part of the story that I get to proclaim. The most amazing part of the story is it's not a story of two lovers that deserve each other. It's not a story of two lovers that complement one another. It's not a story of two lovers that they just fit so well together. It's a story of one lover who was unlovable but loved anyway. You see, the Bible says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God demonstrated His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should never perish, but have everlasting life. God didn't send His Son to the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. So as we wrap up our series here, this is of course the second week of the year. We're finally getting into the new year. We still have that moment where we remember Christmas of 2017. That's behind us now. The stores are already ready. I saw swimsuits hanging in the store the other day. They're already ready. It's 30 degrees, but hey, we're going swimming soon. They know that. Pretty soon it'll be time for the new year to be here. We're already looking ahead, my kids are at least, to Christmas of 2018. But we can still hear, at least in my house, the, the uh, sounds of Christmas 17 because the toys are still, well, the batteries had not run out yet, all these kind of things. So as we wrap up our Christmas series, I want you to take your Bible and I want you to turn to Revelation 21. Now let me tell you, the easiest way to get there is to turn the Bible this way and start from the back and just go that direction. Revelation 21. Now, I've got a new Bible. I started this new Bible just when we started this series here. And it's interesting how we've gone from the series. When we first started, I had trouble with my Bible laying open because we were in Genesis. And now my Bible this morning is keeping wanting to close because we've gone all the way from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And so what as you're turning over there, and I know it's going to be easy for you to get there, But as you're turning over there, what I want to do is I want to trace how we got all the way to the end, just very quickly. So what we've been doing in this entire series, and it's all online, every manuscript, so that you can get all the details, they're all online, free for you. It's there. Take advantage of it. Share it. But we have been demonstrating that if we are to understand the ministry of Jesus, we have to do so by understanding the temple. And so what on earth is the temple? And we've discovered that the temple is intended to point to a reality that's beyond itself. The temple was the blueprint from God to His people 
so that he gave them what the rest of the world would look like when the Lord would fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so every time worship was held in the temple, understand this, every time worship was held in the temple, there was an expectation and longing for God to come and dwell amongst his people. And in Jesus, God has come to dwell amongst us. And by dealing with sin forever, by dying on a cross, by rising again, Jesus allows us to dwell with Him by granting us access to God through His own blood. So what I want to do is, in Revelation, I want to show you the extent that God goes to bring us to Himself, listen, by literally remaking, refashioning the heavens and the earth so that He will bring us to Himself. By the way, it's all been leading up to this moment. We're here in this wonderful picture, looking forward to the day when what we see in Revelation 21 and 22 will come true. And so... That's what the incarnation, that's what the resurrection, that's what the the consummation, that's what it's all about. It's all about this day when God remakes and refashions the whole earth to be a place where His dwelling is with man. So, let's read the Bible together. Let's start in Revelation chapter 21, and I'm going to read all the way through chapter 22 and verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also He said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 
twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, twelve thousand stadia. Its length and its width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, one hundred and forty-four cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gate made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory in it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations." No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we love you. What a marvelous passage. Help us, Lord God, to understand the message from your text. Draw us to the magnificence of this God who is moving heaven and earth to bring us to himself. In Jesus' name, amen. The passage that you and I just read is the passage that gives the the details about the long-anticipated day When God does something, He removes the stain of sin as far as the curse is found. And the way that He removes that stain, the way that He removes it is by washing the earth in the soul-cleansing blood of the precious Lamb of God. So what I want us to do today is I want us to look at uh, the details of this text 
and see the kind of world the Lord is making without the curse of sin. So what does a world without the curse of sin look like? Well, number one, it's a world where Christ is king. It's a world where Christ is king. Now, that's a big deal because Christ being king is the hope and the anticipation of the earth. So let's be honest, though. When we read all this stuff about cubits and stadium, emeralds and all these stuff, we read just that portion of Revelation, and we need to be honest and say that the book of Revelation is a very challenging book. But the best part, the best part of the whole book is in the end. That's why I took you there today. It's also one of the easiest, but anyway, we'll talk about that maybe another day. And by the way, this is Revelation. It's not Revelations. It's not the revelation of John. It's the revelation of Jesus to John. It's one revelation. It's not revelations, plural. It's one detail about what God is going to do in the end. And it was written so that the servants of Jesus would know what must soon take place. And you can get that from Revelation chapter 1. So automatically... As we read Revelation, we're thrust into the realm of the future. Automatically, as we read Revelation, we are waiting, we're forced to long with eager expectation of things that will soon take place. Now, some may say, well, maybe maybe some of this stuff has already taken place. I mean, we're talking about something that was in the future for John, but that's 2,000 years ago. Maybe some, it's not so much history. But the main reason that I say that we know that it's future is because just the contents of the book. Jesus coming back, that hadn't happened yet. A renewed heaven and a new earth, well, there's still sin and we're always in danger of death. We just learned this morning of a man, I think it was 49 years old, that just died in our community. All the, we're always in danger of death. This prophecy in this book can't be fulfilled yet. Evil has, still has to be vanquished. We still live in a world where there is evil. The reason Revelation is at the end of the Bible, the reason there's not another book after it, is because we are waiting for the rest of the story to unfold. And we are right now, are a part of God unfolding His plan. And He's left us with a prophecy. Don't miss this. He has left us with a prophecy. And this prophecy details the beginning of the world. You say, wait, whoa, whoa, wait. Beginning? I thought we were looking at the end of the world. Well, look, look closer. Have we ever heard this language of Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 before? Have we ever heard anything that sounds like that in the Bible? See, this is what I want you to see. We were talking about this this morning in Sunday school, about how all the Bible fits together, and the way that you interpret the Bible is through Christ. This is Christ giving us His message of what He's going to do in the end. And what does He do? He takes us all the way back, if we're paying attention closely, He takes us all the way back to Genesis. Even if you don't know the Bible this morning, I'm pretty sure you've heard Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, what, you say it with me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What did He create? Heavens and the earth. Look at this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. You see what God has automatically done for us? He has taken us back to the beginning. This is not a picture of the end. Listen, this is important. This is not a picture of the end so much as it is a picture of the beginning. There is a world that is coming that will last forever. There is a world that is coming where Christ is king. And this world is our hope. 
And by hope, what we say is, we don't mean I hope so. By hope, we mean this world is a guaranteed reality of what's coming. It's more true than my sweater is red. This world that's coming is guaranteed. You say, how do you know that it's guaranteed? What's the substance of our assurance? Well, the substance of our assurance is the very one who is telling us this. And who is it? It's Jesus. Well, who is Jesus? Well, Revelation tells us. Revelation says of Jesus in chapter 5, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. You see, listen, as we read this, we can be sure that it happened. Because our assurance is Jesus. Jesus secured our assurance the moment that He burst the bonds of death and came from the grave alive. And this Jesus who came from the grave, listen, is the Jesus who is coming to make the kingdoms of this earth His own. This Jesus is coming to trample over every enemy that he has so that just at the very sound, just at the thought of his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that there is one name given unto heaven by which we must be saved and his name is Jesus. They will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's our assurance. Jesus you see the first word of Revelation 20, chapter 1? Look at, look at this. This is important. Then I saw. Do you see that? Now that word then means after. Well, after what? Directly after Revelation chapter 19. What happens in Revelation 19? Let me read it for you. Look at chapter 19 and look at verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head many diadems, many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword on which he strikes down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh was a name written. And what's that name? King of kings and Lord of lords. So when we get to this section and on into chapter 20, Uh, we should have a little sense of nostalgia. We should have a little sense of nostalgia as we've been reading this. Not only does it remind us of Genesis, but this little rider on a white horse whose name is Faithful and True reminds us of a little innocent baby who was helpless one day. Revelation 19, as we read this and all this happening of this God who's coming, should remind us of another song. Another song of Mary, mother of God, who sang after she visited Elizabeth. We call that song, Mary's song, the Magnificent. Listen to the details and listen if you hear their fulfillment in Revelation 19. Listen to what Mary said. My soul magnifies the Lord. 
My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. You say, whoa, 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 whoa. Mary's saying this. Well, the baby's still in her tummy. Maybe I should do this. Mary's still uh, saying, well, how has he trampled over his enemies? Listen, listen. Our salvation was secure the moment he came. Mary is able to say these things, speaking to reality, because the God who orchestrates time and eternity had acted in a single moment, and that one moment defined all time. You have to understand what's happening in Revelation. The church is fixing to face dire persecution. The Diocletian, the Nero, the Diocletian persecutions are fixing to embrace the church. And God sends a message to His people in the beginning. He says, hold on just a minute. The best part's in the end. Don't you give up hope. No matter what this world tells you, you remember the song of Mary. You remember that that she says that my soul magnifies the Lord. You remember that He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He has exalted those of humble estate. This Jesus who came is also the Jesus who's coming. And when He comes, He came in a cradle the first time. He went to a cross. But the next time He comes, He will have His crown of glory. But the best part of the story in Revelation 21 is in verse 3. Christ being king means that Christ has subjects. He's a ruler and he rules the nations with a rod of iron. He has subjects. The world without a curse of sin, number two, is a world where God's dwelling is with man. I love this section. Look at, look at verse 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Woo! That's good, isn't it? God's going to do that. What's the best part of the story? You see, don't just say, my tears are going to be wiped away. Say it all. He is going to wipe away every tear from your eye. You see this? 1 Peter 5 says, After you suffered a little while, the God of all grace will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Do you see the meticulous care that He has for His people? Do you see the, the tender, compassionate heart that He has for us? He loves you. For God so loved the world. And that's just not talking about this and that. That's talking about you individually. That's talking about me. He will wipe away every tear. And this section here that follows is one of the most fascinating sections, I think. 
of all the things to describe the new heavens and the new earth. This is what he says, right? Look, in, then I saw the new heaven and the new earth. You see that? Of all the things that John describes, Jesus describes to John the details of what really looks like a temple. All the details we read in the New Jerusalem, they're there. Remember, he's already taken us back to Genesis. New heavens, new earth. That's Genesis language. Then he starts talking about this, measuring this and measuring that. And and we should remember that the, the garden, it was filled with all these kind of stones and beautiful things. And there was this river there in the, in the well, four rivers, the Pishon and all the rest, the Tigris, Euphrates and the Gihon, I think it is. And all these other different rivers that are there. And he's describing what looks like a temple. All of the details that we read in the New Jerusalem is there to remind us of, the, of a garden, of a temple. This garden that takes the shape of a temple. You see, the details are there to remind us of something that we already know. Well, the precious stones form the foundation in verses 18 through 21. You can go back and read about Solomon's temple and you can see the details are there. The precious stones... These are the same stones that were in Solomon's temple. And then Revelation chapter 21, by the way, verse 1, that's a reference not only to Genesis, but it's also a reference to Isaiah chapter 65, which Miss Debbie just beautifully read just a few moments ago. But after Isaiah 65, it's immediately followed by, well, you know what comes after 65, right? 66, Isaiah chapter 66. And listen to what Isaiah 66 says. God says, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What's a house that you'll build for me? What's a place of my rest? All these things my hands have made. So all these things came to be, declares the Lord. And then listen to what God says. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. So it can't be about the temple. Matter of fact, John tells us, In chapter 21 and verse 22, I saw no temple in the city, but the whole city looks like a temple. It's cube. Solomon's temple, if you look at the shape, it's shaped like a cube. And I don't have time to exegete this for you this morning. It's outside the purview of the sermon, but write this down. If you read Ezekiel chapter 40 and 48, you'll see that that temple that Ezekiel chooses to end his entire prophecy of describes a temple that's not made by hands. It's a city of God. It's a garden temple that fills the earth. And the best part of the last word in Ezekiel, it gives a name to that temple. And guess what the name of the temple is? The Lord is there. As I was reading this and thinking, okay, how do I present this to my people in a way that, you know, we're not going out and I'm, I don't have to tell you what a cubit is and get out the measuring stick and, you know, I don't want to do that. Here's what I want us to think about this morning. Why on earth does Jesus decide to give us the details of this cube-looking structure? Why not tell us in the new heavens and the new earth how blue the color blue will be? Why not answer the question, you know, what happens when my dog dies? Does he go to heaven? You know, all the, it, it doesn't tell us. How high will the mountains be? John, as that angel's carrying you around, can you just look down and just tell us? You know, is, is everything gold? Is it all diamond? He doesn't tell us any of those details. He chooses to tell us the details of a garden city that looks like a temple, I believe. To remind us that the most significant aspect of the temple, listen carefully, is the presence of God. And the greatest part of the new heavens and the new earth is verse 3. The dwelling place of God is 
with man. The best part of the new heavens and the new earth is Emmanuel, God with us, and we're with Him forever. Oh, listen, we can make an idol out of heaven. What we can do is we can be more excited about the streets of gold and the mansion built in glory than the one who hands you the key to the mansion. Heaven's not about me. It's not about you. It's about the glory of the Lord filling the earth. And we're just bystanders. We get to watch and see it all happen. Why does He tell us about all of these things? Yeah, He he tells us what we need to know, doesn't He? He fills us with His hope. That's what it's intended to do. It's not not about us, but it's not totally about us. He does wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more. No more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. The former things have passed away. He's coming to make all things new. But what's the emphasis of heaven? Jesus. He's there. And listen to me carefully, beloved. If heaven looks more like a tree house, that's where I want to be. I don't have to have central hair, central heat, streets of gold. Now, all of that's going to be there, but that's not the emphasis. You know what the emphasis is? Jesus. And wherever He is, that's where I want to be. You see, that's why the world that Christ is building, number three, listen, is a world that will never be subject to cursing again. And that gives us hope. If heaven was about us, you know what we would do? Somehow we would decide to turn heaven into a disaster. Could you just imagine? If God just let us run loose, what a disaster it would be. Heaven's not about us, it's about Him. And because it's about Him, this new heavens and new earth... By the way, let me correct this too. Don't think about heaven as being somewhere up yonder. God's going to take His dominion and put it right here on this new earth. Right here on this new earth. This is the reason Isaiah 65, God says, go ahead and plant. You're going to have all the grapes you want. Go ahead and build a house. We're going to be on this new earth that God creates after He refines it with fire, after all of those things, after He gets rid of all the brambles, all the thorns, all the thickets. Yes, but it's going to be this world. Why? Why? Because He said in Genesis, knowing what was going to happen, He looked at the works that He made and He said that it is good. And what He said, He meant I want you to underscore three phrases. Underscore in your Bible. Verse 25. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Underscore verse 27. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then in chapter 22 and verse 5. And night will be no more. There will be no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Underscore those. And the reason that's important is because some, I've heard them ask before, maybe you have asked this before, they wonder about eternity, and they say, you know, eternity, that's a long time. Will there ever be another chance for a second fall? Will there ever be another chance for another uprising? Will someone lead rebellion again against God? Will there ever be another chance for man to fall away? Unlike the Garden of Eden where there were two trees, look at what's in the new heavens and the new earth. Look in chapter 22. How many trees are there? There's just one. Just one. And look at the details of that tree. A tree of healing for the nations. And how often does it bear fruit? 
How often? Once a month. Every month. Now, by the way, that's important. Remember, we we learned this over here, that the angel's measurements and man's measurements are the same thing. That was important because you know what that means? It means a month is the same thing over here. Jesus is telling us this so that we'll get the message. Here's this one tree that bears fruit all the time, 12 different types of fruit, all for the healing of the nations. And what does this mean? Here's what it means. There will never be a season where the nations will not have the healing love of the Lord God. But you say, that doesn't satisfy. In case there's still questions, if there'll be an opportunity for a second fall, a second rebellion in heaven, just consider this. Only those who the Lamb has redeemed and the Spirit has sealed, only those will be the residents of God's new world. That's number one. Number two, Evil will be no more. And the third reason why I don't believe there'll ever be another fall in heaven, number three, Jesus will be there. And listen to the description of him. Listen to what Revelation chapter 1 says. Then I turned to see the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstand, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. His hairs of his head were white like white wool like snow. His eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And look at John's reaction. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me. <laughs> the compassion of the Lord, he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive for how long? Forevermore. And not only that, but Jesus says, I have the keys of death and Hades. You know what he means by that? He says, I have locked the door shut. I control it. He doesn't control the world anymore. I control it. This Jesus will be there. Now, who would dare stand against Him? Oh, this is far removed from that picture that we have in Luke and in Matthew of this little bitty innocent, helpless Jesus. This Jesus is now a conqueror. This Jesus has conquered death through His own death by coming from death alive. Who would dare stand against Him? But here's the thing. We know, don't we? Many have tried. Many have tried. As Ravi Zacharias has pointed out, down through the centuries, secular societies and authorities have repeatedly crucified and buried Jesus on the public square. But Ravi tells us, but he always rises to outlive his pallbearers. You see, this Jesus has given us a song to keep us while we wait. A psalm in Psalm 98. You can read that for yourself. One day, a man named Isaac Watts was reading Psalm 98, and he didn't intend for it to be a Christmas song, but it turned out to be one of our favorites. But in that song, Joy to the World, Isaac Watts detailed 
the second coming of Jesus. Listen to this verse. This is the song that we sing. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow as far as the curse is found. As far as the curse is found. How far? As far as the curse is found. Father, we love You. We are grateful for this day today that You've given us to long with eager expectation of the salvation of the Lord. And Father, it's my prayer that everyone here today, everyone within the sound of my voice, is able to confidently say, because they know, Lord, I don't know, but You know the heart of everyone here. You know whether or not they belong to You. You know whether or not they are right now longing with eager anticipation not to shrink back at His coming, but to look and say, there is my Jesus. There is the Lord. The One who has gone so far to remake and restore heaven and earth to bring me back to Himself. Father, I pray that we would long in 2018 even more to realize that as each day passes, we're getting closer and closer and closer to the day that Jesus comes. He could come back now. As the end of the book says in Revelation, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and we say, Amen, come on. We're ready. If there's one here today who's not ready, may this be the day that they get ready. And they may say, how do I get ready? It's simple. It's simple. Call upon the name of the Lord, and you will be saved. Ask Him to save you, and He'll save you. We love you. We praise you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for living. Thank you for dying. Thank you for living forevermore, and thank you, Jesus, for coming again. In your name we pray, and all who are His said, Amen. We pray God will use this message for His glory in your life. If you would like more information, please feel free to contact us at info at OxfordBaptistChurch.com. Oxford Baptist Church is located in Oxford, Georgia. If you're close, we'd love to meet you.